Let's go to the Lord once more in prayer. Heavenly Father, we recognize that when your word goes out, it does not return void, but it accomplishes that which you purpose, and we ask that your spirit would do just that in our lives, that as we hear your word preached, that you would help us learn and to see how we might be able to apply it in our lives, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. There used to be an old television series, an old television show called Candid Camera, And this particular show gave us a glimpse into the human psyche by just catching people doing everyday things. Now, there was an episode called Facing the Rear. An unsuspecting person would enter into an elevator. And naturally, they would turn and face the elevator door. And as these cameras captured this unsuspecting individual, there were also three actors would also enter into the elevator as well. But these actors who entered into the elevator, instead of facing the door, they face the rear. And you can see through this, these cameras, this unsuspecting person thinking, do I face forward? Do I turn around? Do I face forward? And then the fourth actor comes into the elevator and like the three others, faces the rear. And eventually, this person caught on camera, like all the others, turns to the rear. Now, this particular episode shows us one thing, that social pressure is real. That peer pressure can oftentimes get us to do things that are against convention. Now, there are times when peer pressure is good. It's good that we go with the flow. It's good that everyone obeys the traffic laws, and they drive in their lanes. Most people, most people. It's good when most people stand in line to get a ticket to enter the ballpark. Everyone queues up. That's great. It's also wonderful when you walk into a restaurant and you begin to survey, what is everyone else ordering? Because you'll know, perhaps, maybe what everyone else is ordering is a specialty. So you order it as well. But where peer pressure goes wrong, where peer pressure becomes dangerous is when it encourages us to do things that are displeasing to the Lord. That peer pressure can encourage us to groupthink rather than God think. That peer pressure causes us to wonder, what is everyone else doing and how can I join in? How can I fit the crowd? How can I not stand out and that I can join everyone else? Rather than asking ourselves, What does God want me to do in this particular situation or in this particular context? Their peer pressure, especially now with social media tools like TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, there are more tools in your peers' arsenal to pressure you to do what they do, to like what they like, to think what they think. Your peers may pressure you to get into a relationship that you know you should not be in because you guys look so good together. Or peer pressure may pressure you or influence you to doctor your timesheet because all your coworkers do it as well. Peer pressure may cause you to perhaps skip a small group gathering because you want to catch the latest film. It may even cause you to 
miss Sunday morning service because you want to get in line for the new and hottest restaurant. Peer pressure can cause us to do things that are displeasing to God. So then there is a question. We have to wonder, what are we to do? When we face the pressure to do what our peers do, but feel also the prompting to do what God wants us to do. How do we respond when we feel the intense pressure of our peers? What do we do when we desire to think like the group before us rather than think the things of God? How do we respond when we face peer pressure? What do we do? Do we choose to side with our peers or do we do what is pleasing to the Lord? Now this morning, we're going to turn to a story that will answer that particular question. A story of a king, a king of the people. A king that represented the people and all that they wanted to do and all that they thought. A king that they even asked for. And so it's right that this king would be named Saul. Asked for. And in this story, we will find out how Saul, facing the pressure of his people, gives in. And how he is an example for us not to follow. But then in this story, there's also another character, a prophet, whose name is Samuel. Also meaning, asked of, but asked of, of God. And in Samuel's character, we find an example of what to follow and what to do. Now, this story is found in 1 Samuel chapter 15. So if you aren't there already, please turn there with me. Thank you, Josh, for the reading of God's Word, which was in this passage, 1 Samuel chapter 15. It's right after the book of Ruth. If you are in Psalms, you've turned too far, and you have to turn backwards. And we're in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Now, in this text, we'll talk about three things. First, we'll talk about the idea from the text. What is the proposition? What is the main idea that the author of Samuel is trying to convey? What is the story of Saul trying to tell us? And then we'll talk about how this story in the past has a principle that still applies for us today. That what is this idea, what is this proposition, what is this idea that is universal that still applies for us as believers? And then we'll lastly talk about an implication. What is an application? What is it that we should do in light of this principle? So first, let's talk about the text. Let's talk about this story. And the main idea of this story and of this text is this idea that Saul's choice to please people led to a broken relationship with God. While Samuel's choice to please God led to a broken relationship with Saul. That Saul choosing to succumb to peer pressure because he chose to do what the people wanted to do, it led to a broken relationship with God. But Samuel, because he wanted to please God, because Samuel wanted to do what God directed, ordered, and commanded, that led to a broken relationship with Saul. So we're going to focus first on Saul, Saul's choice, Saul's 
poor decision. And then we'll focus on Samuel's choice, Samuel's decision. So what is Saul's choice? Well, Saul's choice to please people, as I said before, led to a broken relationship with God because God expected Saul to obey a command. And what was that command? That command was to destroy the Amalekites completely, utterly destroy them, wipe them out. And we see this in verse 1 of chapter 15. Let me read it for you. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That everything of Amalek is to be destroyed. Now, this idea of devoting to destruction, if you notice in your ESV Bible in verse 3, there's a footnote. And if you look down, the footnote says, that is set apart, devote as an offering to the Lord for destruction. And then it references verse 8, 9, 15, 18, 20, and 21. That this phrase comes up multiple times in the text. So what does it mean? The Hebrew word for devote to destruction is the word harem. And for those of you who have stayed with us in our study, might think to yourselves, that word sounds familiar. And it's true. Because this word showed up earlier in a story of Joshua. When Joshua was supposed to commit Jericho to complete destruction, harem. And another word for harem, or devote to destruction, is the word ban, B-A-N. That Israel was supposed to submit everything to this ban, meaning that as everything is destroyed, just like a burnt offering, where the whole offering is burnt up and devoted to the Lord, everything of Amalek is to be devoted to God. Now you would be wondering, well, what did Amalek do or the Amalekites do that would warrant God to give this instruction? Now, if you rewind your Israelite history and you see the film again, you'll see that when Israel left Egypt and crossed over the Red Sea, their first opponent that they faced were the Amalekites. And this story is particular because you learned it if you grew up in church in Sunday school, because this is a story where Moses raised his arms and they won. And when he got tired, Israel lost. But when he raised them again, they won. And eventually, Israel prevailed over the Amalekites. Now, Moses also in his last words to Israel in the book of Deuteronomy commands Israel to remember the Amalekites and what they have done because the Lord will commit them to destruction. And here we see it. This is God fulfilling that particular promise and that word. Now, we see that when Saul receives this command, he follows it faithfully to a point I mean, he follows the commitment to the ban initially. He does it, but kind of not. So let's look at these verses in verse 4 through 8. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Tel Alim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go depart, go down from the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. 
So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. And you read these verses. If it ended there, Saul did. Great job. Right? He did what he's supposed to do. Now, you may be wondering, well, why did he allow the Kenites to leave? I thought he was supposed to devote everything to destruction. But the Kenites were actually descendants of Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. And the Kenites were known for helping Israel in their exodus. If you remember in the book of Judges, in the story of Sisera, the person who landed the fatal blow to his head was Jael. And she was a Kenite. And so it fits God's mode of operation that when there is a city devoted to destruction, whoever is faithful to him will be spared, that they will be shown mercy. I remember the story of Jericho, Rahab and her family also spared. And so it's no surprise that the Kenites were allowed to leave the city. But then we have to wonder, what happens after this? We discover that as Saul and the people are destroying the city, they see that fattened calf. They see that fattened sheep. They hear the bleeding of the sheep, the lowing of the cattle. They think about how good it might be to have that cattle with their plow, how delicious their meat might taste. And they might think, why put something so good to waste? Why destroy it? And they decide not to complete the ban. That Saul, we learn, chooses to please the people rather than please God when he sees the spoils. Uh, we see this initially in verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs. And all that was good, it would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Now notice in verse 9, it says, but Saul and the people. That it wasn't just the people who saw the fattened calves and the wonderful sheep and thought, oh, I'd love to own them. It was Saul and the people. But Saul was supposed to be the king. He reported to God. He was supposed to lead the people, not be led by them. And we find out later that the people, perhaps because of their desire for the spoils of war, convinced, persuaded, even led Saul to fail to obey God. We see that in verse 20. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people, it was their fault, took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. But then Saul changes his tune. Before, he says, it's the people's fault. But then later, he finally confesses that, no, I followed their voice. I was persuaded by them, and that's the reason why I took the devoted things. We see this confession finally in verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because 
I feared the people and obeyed their voice. And what happens? That Saul's choice to please these people, to please the Israelites, resulted in him rejecting God's word, rejecting God's command to execute the ban. That Saul said, thanks God, but no thanks. He didn't realize that in Israel, there is a hierarchy. And it doesn't stop with Saul the king. There's the Lord. There's the Lord, the king, and the people. And when Saul receives a command from the Lord, if God says jump, Saul's supposed to say, how high? He's supposed to follow everything directly according to God's word. And yet because he chose to please the people, he rejected it. And we see the rejected, rejection noted in verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And we see that again, also in verse 17. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And this rejection of God's word, this rejection of God's command, has consequences, that there were dire results. And that consequence is that God rejected Saul as king. That Saul's rejection of God's word ultimately led to the kingship title being taken from him. And we see that in verse 26. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And not only was the kingship title taken from him, but it would be taken from him and also given to someone else, meaning that Saul's lineage would no longer continue the kingship, but someone else would. We see this in verse 27. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. So God takes away the title of king. He gives the dynasty to someone else. And this command is irrevocable that this command, this direction is firm. It will not be changed. And we see that in verse 29. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Meaning, I will not change my mind. That the removal of Saul as king is sure. And that's what happened. That because Saul chose to please the people, it led to ultimately a broken relationship with God. Now let's turn our attention to Samuel, the prophet, the other character in this story. And we see that Samuel's choice to please God ultimately led to a broken relationship with Saul. Now Samuel first confronts Saul in how he had displeased the Lord. We already know that Saul displeased God because he failed to apply the ban. But also, Saul displeased God 
because he believed that ritual, that worship, mattered more than obedience. Uh, we see this in verse 22. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul believed that, yeah, I may have made a mistake, but if I just worship God, things will be okay. If I just come to service, if I bring the right offering, even though I didn't obey God, things will be okay. And Samuel says, no, no, no. That is not right. And why? He uses this word, this phrase, rebellion is as the sin of divination. You're like, okay, what does that mean? Well, divination is being able to tell the future. And in the ancient Near East, people would do certain practices to be able to tell the future. So why? That they could see what is the outcome, and then what can I do to change that outcome so that it has the best results. And it's manipulation. And God says, I cannot be manipulated. And then we see another phrase, presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. In the ancient Near East, people would set up these idols, clean them, dress them, feed them, be nice to them. Why? So these idols will ultimately bless them. Again, manipulation. And God says, no, I will not be manipulated like these idols. Just because you offer these sacrifices, I will not be manipulated because my word still stands. Now, not only did Samuel confront Saul in how he had displeased the Lord, but we also see that Samuel does what Saul should have done once he was confronted. We see that Samuel pleases God by ultimately completing the ban when he kills Agag. That when he kills Agag the king, he does what God initially commanded Saul to do. We see this in verse 32. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Did you notice in verse 33, before the Lord in Gilgal? You've got to wonder, Samuel, weren't there other people? Was not Saul there? Was not Israel there as well? But the author of Samuel seems to be trying to highlight that Samuel cared about the audience of one, God. And what God had commanded, he would do. And he faithfully completes the mission that Saul was given. And then we see that Samuel then breaks relationship with Saul, that the relationship between Saul and Samuel are now broken. And we see that in the last verses of this chapter in verse 34. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul, and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. 
broken relationship. You will never see Samuel and Saul together again. Well then, if that's the story, you have Saul, who chooses to please the people, leads to broken relationship with God. You have Samuel, who chooses to please God, but leads to broken relationship with Saul. Then what is the principle for us today? What is the idea, what is the kind of thrust of this particular text that still applies? It's this idea that pleasing people will lead to broken relationship with God, while pleasing God may lead to broken fellowship with people. Then when we choose to please people, when we make people the highest priority in following and doing things so that they would give us their approval, it leads to broken relationship with God. But then if we decide to please God, if we do what God commands and instructs us, it may lead to broken fellowship with people. Let me give you some examples. Think about this. Let's say you're a manager of a team. You're the team lead. And at the end of every quarter or every year, you have to give a status report in terms of how well your team has performed. You look at the report, you see the numbers are kind of down this year. But your supervisor also looks at the numbers and says, the numbers are kind of down this year. Wink, wink, hint, hint. You need to change the numbers. And you feel the pressure because if the supervisor presents to his directors that the team is doing well, that means bonus at the end of the year. That means he might be able to brag on his team at the next social hour. That there are social rewards if you decide to change the numbers. And so let's say you give in to peer pressure, you give in to this supervisorial pressure that you feel that is quite intense, and you change the numbers, maybe just a little bit, and then your manager presents to his directors, hey, the team's doing well this year. Applaud, 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 that's wonderful. You know, pat on the back. But then every time people talk about your team, you feel a punch in the gut because you know the numbers are not right. You feel guilty because you know that you did something wrong. That when you come to worship on Sunday morning service, when you sing songs that praise God, there's always that voice in the back of your mind, you are such a hypocrite. And that happens when we give in to peer pressure. It just doesn't happen at work. It happens at school. Maybe somebody asked you to borrow your homework assignment so that they can copy it because they spent the last night a little bit too much on the video games. And they need your help. They plea. They ask. They beg. Please, help me. And it's not just this person, but multiple people. And you decide to give it. And then you have to deal with the consequences, again, of guilt and shame. That when you go to worship, you wonder, why did I do that? Broken relationship with God. Or maybe you may feel the pressure to go see an inappropriate film. And you know that if you go watch this film, it'll plant within your mind thoughts that will not help you in your sexual purity. Or maybe you may feel the pressure to not give regularly at church because, hey, no one else does. Or you may feel the pressure to date a non-believer because everyone else is dating except for me. You may feel the pressure. And these things ultimately lead to a broken fellowship with the Lord. 
But then there is the other part, that if we decide to please God, it may lead to broken fellowship with people. That if we are honest with our status report at the end of the year or at the end of the quarter, our supervisor will be upset. Why'd you report those numbers? I told you to tweak the numbers. I told you to change them. And then you'll have a supervisor who's upset with you. That every time that there is a project available for you to advance your career, he gives it to someone else. That there will be consequences. You're not invited to the next social gathering at work. Or maybe if you don't lend your homework so someone can copy it, people won't hang out with you at lunch. They won't invite you over to the next sleepover. Or if you refrain from going to see that film that you know is inappropriate, your friends may make fun of you for being self-righteous. Or when you think about coming to service or small group gatherings when people want to go do something else, they may not invite you again. Or when you refrain from dating a non-believer, your family may give you even more pressure, more heartache for the fact that you're not dating. That oftentimes, when we try to please the Lord, it may lead to broken fellowship with people. So what are we supposed to do? What are the choices? You either please people or please God. And that comes to our last point, that we ultimately have to choose to please God rather than please people. That we have to make our priority God and no one else. That he deserves our allegiance, our loyalty, to do what is pleasing to him. Now you may be wondering, well, that is a really bad deal, especially if it leads to broken fellowship with people. But imagine the benefits of pleasing the Lord. The fact that you are honest in that status report at work. That you can say to yourself in the mirror that you have an integrity that God gave you the courage to do what is right. And that you can be entrusted with future tasks to do the responsible thing. To do the right thing. And that even though your supervisor may not see that now, someone else may see it later. Or maybe you think about this idea of not allowing someone to cheat off your homework. You may be wondering, what benefit is there that you can continue to take pride in your work, knowing that the work is yours? And yes, you may have to ask God for courage in those times. But even if you have to ask God for help, your relationship with God will grow even closer. Let's say you don't go see that inappropriate film. Well, that means less thoughts that may cause you to lust or move towards sexual immoral behavior. Or if you think about refraining from dating, you can know that you're building a deeper trust in the Lord, that he knows what is best in your life, even though it may be difficult or even that it may be hard, even though you're single. And you might be able to invest time that you otherwise would spend in a relationship in other brothers and sisters in Christ to be able to do things for the kingdom that no one else is able to do, and that it's a benefit. That we think about these things that oftentimes lead to broken fellowship with people, but we never realize what benefit we might receive. And the greatest benefit that we would ever hear is at the end of our lives when we see God face to face, we can hear the words, well done, 
good and faithful servant. And why else is pleasing God far better than pleasing people? Is because we have a king who exemplified that. We have a king who decided to please God with all of his life, that he healed the sick, he spent time with the poor, that he cared for the outcasts, that he spent his time with people no one else wanted to even associate with. And it led to a broken relationship with religious leaders. And that our king, Jesus Christ, would desire to please God so much that he would go to a cross and experience a broken relationship with God so that we could experience a restored relationship with him. And our king, Jesus Christ, because he has done that for us, gives us the courage, the ability, and the hope to live our lives in a way that pleases the Lord. Even though it may be hard, even though it may be difficult, it's because Christ did it first. And for those of you who say, I could never do that. I don't have those resources availed to me. And I would say to you, they are. That if you choose this day to place your faith in Christ and what he has done for you on the cross, then that help is available for you as well. And for those of us who are believers, who have lived to please people and has resulted in sin, there's forgiveness, there's redemption, there's repentance for you as well. So in summary, we need to learn this principle, this idea, that if we please people, it will ultimately lead to a broken relationship with the Lord. But if we decide to please God, then it may lead to a broken relationship with other people. But ultimately, as believers, we have to choose, we have to decide to please God rather than please people. May we be a community, a church, a body in Christ who desires to live our lives in a way that pleases him. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for how you have called us into a relationship with you. We recognize that oftentimes because of the pressures around us in the world, it's so easy for us to give in. And we pray that your spirit would help us to learn to choose what pleases you rather than what pleases the world and our friends and our peers, so that when we indeed do worship you, it would be pure and in truth and in the Spirit. And so we ask that your Spirit will help us to do this, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.